Let's start off with your background, Kyle. You started off as a teacher in Briarcliff Christian School, which interestingly is where one of our RUF interns went to school, a guy named Russell Hancock. Can you give us the three to five minute version of your profession from that teacher role to now? Yeah, Jonah, and, and thank you uh, for your time this morning. I'm delighted to be with you guys. Uh, and I do have a little bit of a uh, unconventional background to be someone who's now working in financial services, but uh, it's really just more of a, of a testament to how I grew up and the way that I was raised. Uh, my parents were teachers and I had great admiration and respect for them and, and very much uh, in many ways, I idolized my father uh, who was a lifelong educator and so I thought that that was a great path to go, go down. Um, and then also it was a little bit of my theological misunderstanding of the role of, of work even at that point in my life, believing that uh, without even realizing that the only way to make an impact or to do anything that is noble or worthwhile in society had to be done in either the nonprofit or uh, service-oriented type professions. And so uh, I went down that path believing that education was a great way to make an, a great impact and still believe that. But, uh, you know, as I got into it, I realized I wasn't my dad. And so uh, there were things that I was curious about and felt like I might have gifting, uh, giftings towards and, and abilities to pursue. And so uh, as I began my career in education was very grateful for the opportunities and enjoyed many parts of it, but had a number of curiosities in a number of other places as well. And through many conversations, uh, decided to start exploring the idea of business school just as a way to open up my horizons uh, and give me other insights into what opportunities might even exist. And really what probably cemented that decision to actually make the transfer and to make the jump to go to business school was a conference that I actually was invited to attend and attended actually at the Yale School of Management um, in the spring of 2008. Uh, it, was, it was a conference called Believers in Business, and it had been organized by a number of uh, business school students, uh, MBA students from around the country at uh, great institutions, and they were all looking at uh, very uh, intentionally how to integrate faith and work. And really, the, all, many of the ideas, the foundational principles uh, that I still very much espouse to and pursue and, and continually study and evaluate and, and seek to integrate about how work and worship are tightly knit together and how uh, all of that we are created to work uh, in, in every good endeavor is indeed good uh, as long as we are doing it to honor the Lord. Uh, then that was something that really encouraged me that yes, you can go into the business world. Uh, you can have an impact. Uh, and there's nothing wrong necessarily with making money. And so at that point in my life, I felt I did not necessarily believe that money was a neutral idea. Um, but, I, but I very much, without even realizing it, had grown up with the idea that if you were in business, you were not, um, you were somewhat of, 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 of having to compromise in some way in your life uh, to really fulfilling the, the mission that the Lord has for each of us. So uh, went into business school, and, and even in those early days of business school, I still didn't necessarily understand what I wanted to do, but I uh, had the great idea that, well, then I'll just go into business school so that maybe I can be in nonprofit management. You know, there's somewhat redemption to that, and so I wasn't really even fully inclined to go the for-profit route even at that point, point. Um, and the Lord was continuing to work, and, and he connected me to some really great people 
uh, throughout that transition period and was ultimately introduced to some, some men uh, at Goldman Sachs at the time uh, who were believers and began to uh, have great conversations with them about uh, ultimately the possibility of working with them. And, and some of the things that really drew me to uh, private wealth management space where I've spent you know, the last decade plus were this idea that you can continue to have so much of an influence uh, and the impact you can have with giving sound uh, and wise advice, especially to Lord willing uh, other believers who, who may become clients as well in helping them um, in all areas of stewardship and consider what it means to be stewards of great wealth. Well, something that was really encouraging to me and I saw that that could be uh, a way to, to really use my giftedness and interest uh, in a way that would, would be ultimately uh, glorifying to the king and, and beneficial to the kingdom. So, Were there any lessons from your time in, in teaching that kind of still carry over to your position today? Yeah, yeah, very much so. In fact, that was one of the things that I, I feel like edu working in education from the outset was, was an awesome experience for so many ways because, I mean, how many other jobs uh, your first day on the job, you know, as a 23, 24, 25-year-old, depending upon when you graduate school or graduate school, literally my first day on the job, I had 70 students show up in the room, and they were there to hear from me, and my responsibility was to teach them, and in many ways, it was very entrepreneurial, even, uh, and so it was like, I have to create this experience for them. I have to educate them. Uh, it's a huge burden. Uh, and, and, and you know what, when you mess up, it's on display against a lot of unforgiving high school students. And so uh, in many ways you have to, <laughs> while they not, not necessarily uh, have the knowledge and experience that you have, you've got to bring your A game every day. And so for me, it was very formative in the idea that you need to really come every day prepared and with a plan. Uh, also the nature of what I was teaching, I was teaching, you know, all levels of mathematics to high school students which at the time to them were very complicated and complex ideas. And to be able to, to try to communicate in the way in which they could understand and conceptualize and actually um, help them grow in that area, you had to be thoughtful and try to put, them, put yourself in their shoes to try to explain and communicate things effectively. And really that's what I do every day now. And so uh, in, in the financial services and the wealth management world, oftentimes, uh, the strategies we, we discuss with clients, the ideas we're bringing to bear with clients initially can sound somewhat complicated and complex, especially when uh, there's generational wealth uh, that's being managed. And so to be able to try to be prepared uh, to help them formulate a plan that they can truly understand and conceptualize. And then ultimately the idea of you know, having a couple of degrees in mathematics, really what you learn through that is just problem solving. Uh, and so any, anytime we're working with clients, uh, the first question has to be, you know, what's the problem you're trying to solve? Uh, and so what is, what is it that you're truly trying to accomplish with this wealth? And so as you begin to have those conversations, as you get to know and you build rapport with families in that respect, the education process becomes uh, much more of a partnership and, and you're able to communicate in ways that are effective for them. So I, I would encourage anyone, you know, I know that Teach for America and other programs have become very popular in, in recent years, but any type of experience like that where you really have to get out of your comfort zone early in your career is very beneficial. And that's, and that's probably the biggest thing I took away from uh, those first few years in education. Gotcha. Great. So let's move a bit into investing. And I know one of your 
passions is around impact investing. And the last mm-hmm. time we spoke, we had this framework of these three to four P's of impact. And I don't know if this is something already very well understood in the investment world, but I thought it was very clarifying and helpful. So do you mind kind of just laying that out again for our listeners? Yeah, yeah. And that, and impact investing, I mean, obviously with, with you all and your colleague at Stanford, where it's, it's very much in vogue uh, and there's a lot of great work being done in that part of the country, uh, I would imagine you've interacted with it. But you're, you're going to see a lot of acronyms, a lot of different terms, whether it's responsible investing, values-aligned investing, ESG investing, uh, so many impact investing. There's so many different ways to describe this. Um, and, and really what it comes down to is the level of impact. It, it's really the most simple way to describe it is doing well by doing good. And, and that's typically where people are beginning to consider more than one source of return, not just a financial return. So what is another outcome that can result from deploying investment capital into a certain sector, into a certain business, into a certain strategy? And so um, in, in, in one of the great questions that every impact investor has to determine uh, when they are setting out on their journey is what is their what's called theory of change. So what is the problem they're trying to solve? What do they see is wrong with the world? And what do they and how do they believe that investment capital can in fact address that problem? And so that's the whole idea around the theory of change. And so there's different levels at which people can be quote impact investors. And that really is a function of the asset class or the opportunity for the investment. And so the basic initial level is just values alignment. And you typically see that in the public sector, you know, public markets, whether it's just, you know, public equities. And that tends to become a lot more of just positive and negative screening, really negative screening, making sure that you don't own anything that don't counteract with your values. Uh, And then there's other levels uh, where you can be much more proactive with the type of managers you select and implement within your portfolio and actually have positive screens or positive tilts towards the values you're trying to implement within your portfolio to make sure that that is consistent with who you are and your belief system. Uh, But then I think that the most, the one that gets the most attention is this deep thematic impact investing where people, where investors are truly trying to implement their values in a very uh, measurable way within in a certain type of investment opportunity. And so there's a number of different themes uh, that an impact investors will uh, seek to develop. You know, it could be education, it could be healthcare, it could be housing. And so there's a number of different ways to implement this and think through it. And so many times impact investors can have paralysis by analysis and they can try to be looking for that very perfect investment that incorporates all of what they're trying to accomplish with their investment capital. And and many times, while that's a great endeavor, sometimes it can actually leave them very discouraged because they say, well, this isn't having the type of impact I want to have. And how do I really determine if this is truly an impact investment or if it's just a really good investment that maybe has some sort of social benefit in it. And so some of the things I think about when I try to, when I try to, use a framework to determine if something is an impact investment. It is, if it is something that will have a financial return. And of course there's a whole level of financial returns. People could have all the way from concessionary to 100% for profit. And that's another follow-up question that that might be interesting with the whole uh, continuum and spectrum of capital opportunities. But really when you're thinking about how to determine if something affects what you're trying to accomplish in a certain way, 
a couple of years ago, I came up with, with something that's very simple, uh, just because they all start with the word P, uh, but four different P's uh, that help you think if your uh, profit-seeking capital is truly having an impact. And one is uh, the people. And so if you're looking at a, a business or an investment that you're hoping to generate some sort of measurable return alongside a financial return, then is it improving the lives of people? And so whether that's a certain uh, demographic of people that might benefit from the business or from the investment, or if maybe you're employing a certain type of people, uh, people that are at risk or not necessarily quote hireable by, med by conventional standards. Uh, and so that, I think that's a very real way to measure the impact. The other three are, are the place, the product or the process. And so when we think about place many times, Impact investors are very much focused on a certain place. It could be a local community where the impact investor lives. Uh, it could be a certain uh, uh, certain economy or a certain part of the world that maybe they just have a passion for because of other experiences. And you see this parallel many times in philanthropy. You'll have philanthropists who are very focused on the local and very focused on the global. And so they'll have two very wide ends of the spectrum with the way that they're trying to create the impact with their charitable giving. Uh, but with your investing, also if you're trying to affect a certain place, so maybe that's a neighborhood, maybe that's a community, maybe that's um, you know, a certain part of the country that you believe needs this type of business or investment. So that's the way you think about place. Another thing is the product. Uh, and that's in, in many ways, that's a lot of the time what people focus on the most. And so you think about, uh, you think about even, you know, like Tom's shoes or something like that, where it's like, oh, they, they're developing these, these shoes uh, and they're producing these shoes. And this product is very, uh, it, it's a socially responsible company because every time they make a Tom's shoe or they sell one, they give a shoe to someone else in the part of the world that needs, that needs footwear. And so uh, it could be that the product you're doing, or maybe it's even some sort of healthcare solution, that actual product as it's brought to market will benefit society. And so you can consider that in an, in an impact investment. It could be educational software. We've seen that even in this pandemic, that ed education technology is hugely transformative uh, in this environment, especially for uh, students who are not able to have the resources that others have uh, in, in the learning from home type of world. And so that would be an example of a product that actually could be considered part of an impact investment. And then the final one is process. So we have people place product and process. And it could be that the way that you manage your business, you operate your business, you do so in a way that the actual process by which you operate is differentiated from an approach that is purely profit seeking or purely uh, looking to 100% only uh, maximize shareholder value. And so thinking about the stakeholders in your business and incorporating that into the process of how you operate is a way to be a responsible and impact investment type uh, opportunity. And, and obviously the ideal scenario is if you can have two or three of those, uh, even four of them, maybe all align at once, it would be such a great type of invest, impact investment opportunity. But don't, don't be too dissatisfied if, if, you know, especially for young, aspiring entrepreneurs like yourself who maybe are going into the world of social enterprise, if maybe even your enterprise only accomplishes one of those from the outset, but then you're able to incorporate other processes or other components as well. I heard a great quote from a, 
a company, uh, an entrepreneur several years ago, uh, when he was talking about his business, he says, you know, he wants to be financially efficient so that he can be operationally inefficient. And so what he was basically saying was he was trying to do the best he can with his business. His goal was to be incredibly financially efficient so that they were, uh, had margin to be able to hire uh, individuals, uh, you know, whether they're people with disabilities, whether it's uh, people that are coming out of uh, the criminal justice system, whether it's any type of at-risk population, he has made it to where the company operates so efficiently from a financial situation that they can, quote, be operationally inefficient with the type of people they employ. Uh, and in fact, all that's done is benefit the company even more, as, but not obviously it's benefited the lives of those employees as well. And so uh, considering those type of ideas uh, when either beginning, you know, starting a business or making an investment is a way to, to, to maybe have a good framework to begin approaching it. Yeah, as in your current role, is there, to the extent that you can share, is there an example of someone that has come to you and, and said, hey, hey, look, Kyle, I want to do some kind of impact investing. What's the typical pipeline, so to speak, of where you'll advise the client in terms of the questions to think about and then kind of where you move from there? Yeah, and, and it's obviously a space that is growing immensely and more and more investors are looking to have this values alignment and this integrity with their portfolio, uh, with the way that they view the world and the way that they invest their assets. So uh, it, there's definitely not a shortage of opportunities. So this is not a, a problem where you don't have an investment pipeline of, of strategies or products that you could employ. Uh, but it, what, what does take time is the actual transition of the portfolio. Uh, and, you know, there's this idea of what's called total activation, which is where, uh, you know, families or foundations or investors really want to activate the entire portfolio, you know, to try to seek to have almost 100% alignment with their philosophy and their worldview through their assets. That's very ambitious. It's very difficult. There's still certain asset classes that it's a little bit, you know, uh, debatable whether you can truly be implementing in a way that's considered impact investing, but uh, typically the process would be like at the outset, you know, what do you currently own? So just looking at what, what the investor currently owns, what the invest, how the investor is currently invested in, in trying to identify and develop a system, uh, an analysis of how consistent is this with your worldview? And that has to also take into consideration a number of questions where you would diagnose what is the actual worldview this person is trying to espouse and how they have certain beliefs about a range of topics, um, whether it's employment practice, whether it's weapons, whether it's the environment, whether it's human rights, whether it's all of these type of different issues that, you know, you've seen one impact investor, you've seen one impact investor. Everybody has a, has a belief set <laughs> that incorporates, uh, and no one is 100% consistent with another person. A lot of overlap potentially, but not 100%. And so, uh, what is then part of the process is as you begin to develop that vision and that viewpoint to then start to incorporate the investment opportunity set with how they see the world. And, and as you're doing that, that's when you begin to build out a broader portfolio that over time becomes much more in line with how they see the world. So the first thing is quote, right, do no harm. And then from there, you want to begin to build up something that is actually positive and it's proactive in the way of 
being, you know, much more, much less on defense and much more on offense. And so, uh, you know, there's a, there's a number, there's no shortage of funds or strategies out there, whether it's in private equity, private debt, public equity, public debt. Um, you know, there's all, real estate is, is a, is an area that's very popular within the impact investing world, uh, for a number of different reasons. So, um, you know, there's, I don't know if that was helpful, but it's, it's, it's yeah. definitely a robust ecosystem and investment opportunity set that has been developed and cultivated over the last 10 to 20 years. Great. Yeah, that's cool to hear. So kind of shifting into work is calling now. Just actually yesterday, uh, th there was the Faith Driven Entrepreneur and the day before investing uh, organization, they had their conference and I, I peeked in and it was really great. I uh, learned a lot. But you have spent a good amount of time in non-faith-based institutions. Uh, the financial mm -hmm. industry in general is not thought to be as distinctly Christian. So how do you remind yourself that the work done there can just be as significant as whatever explicitly faith-based fund there might be? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a great question. And I, and I think a big part of it is, uh, you know, understanding calling. And, and, and a lot of calling is uh, where the Lord has provided opportunity at a given time in anyone's life. You know, Jim Elliott had, had the great quote of wherever you are, be all there. And so wherever the Lord has placed you, it's incumbent upon us to be faithful. Uh, and, you know, Martin Luther uh, is known for saying that the, the job of a the way to be, and I'm, I'm butchering this, but essentially if you're a Christian shoemaker, that doesn't mean you just, you know, draw a cross on your shoes, right? But what you do is you make really excellent shoes. And that's a good way to bring glory to God with your work. Uh, Tim Keller in his book, Every Good Endeavor, you know, references the idea, if you're a Christian pilot, your job is to not necessarily just get on the, get on the intercom system as you're flying the plane and share the gospel. It's to land the plane. That's your job to do really good work. And, and that in and of itself is glorifying to God, because if we were, if we truly think about it, we in the creation minute, we were created to work. Work was given before the fall. So work is good and work is worship. Something I think is very interesting is the Hebrew word for worship is Avodah and the Hebrew word for work is also Avodah. And so the fact that that same word, is used for both work and worship shows that when we are working and we were doing it faithfully, uh, we can do that in a way that brings glory to God. And we can do that in a way that doesn't compromise how we're called to live as Christians, regardless of the institution where he's placed us at a given time. You know, I think back even, even scripturally to uh, Joseph in Egypt, right? Uh, he was not working for a Christian. He was not in a Christian business. He was working for Pharaoh. And he was given an incredible opportunity for the kingdom in that place at that time to be the steward of all of those resources. And ultimately, that's the way I think about my work each and every day is it's, it's much more of a stewardship uh, conversation. I need to be a good steward of the, of the opportunity the Lord has given me to provide for my family by working where I work. I need to be an excellent steward of the resources that our clients entrust to us uh, to manage on their behalf. And, you know, Lord willing, there's opportunities to, to be a steward for uh, clients who are like-minded and values aligned with the way that I see the world and to have a, a really positive uh, effect in that regard or positive influence. 
but many times it's just being an excellent servant and an excellent uh, uh, steward of you know a client and their desire to accomplish their goals. And when you're doing that, you're being light in, in a dark world. And I think uh, so. Uh, would encourage many of you uh, that are seeking to begin your careers in the next few years, do not dis get discouraged if you don't work for this incredibly idealistic uh, corporation or you don't necessarily work with uh, everyone that agrees with the way you think about the world because there is still very much uh, great value and great opportunity to bring glory uh, to Christ by the work that you're doing each and every day. Yeah. What additional advice would you offer for precisely that kind of person who's just entering into some kind of investment banking role or consulting role? They're working 90 to 100 hour weeks. It's hard to see how this is, you know, glorifying to God. They, just their life in general is just sort of consumed by work. How do you, how would you encourage them in that time? Yeah, I think, I think a couple things. One is uh, on the work stint front to just work with excellence uh, to be to be a great employee to be a great uh, teammate uh, in, in oftentimes that means not necessarily work, worrying about the results and the outputs you can't control them just just be a great employee and, and work with excellence I think another thing is uh, deeply critical is surround yourself with community uh, you know especially early on in the career uh, it can be very lonely it can be uh, you can struggle a lot with identity. And so to remember, you know, as a believer that your ultimate identity is a son or daughter of the heavenly father, of the king of the world. And wherever he has you, that's where he's called you for that time. Uh, and, and we were on mission for him. And to do that work, we don't know the grand plan that he has for us. in uh, that grand plan uh, may result in us having some very fulfilling missional focused career at some other point or, or opportunity 20, 30, 40 years down the road. It could be two, three, four years down the road, or it could be that the Lord has us doing a very seemingly mundane or unimportant quote to the kingdom job in this life or in this particular day where we're doing something that is laying the groundwork for another great purpose to be accomplished. You know, if you mentioned investment banking, but if you were, if you were working 90, 100 hours uh, a week as a, as a junior analyst on an investment banking team, you know, the work that you're doing ultimately is so much bigger than just cranking out those models and those spreadsheets. But, it, you know, capital formation, capital raising, capital markets, all of that really is the underpinning of a society where wealth can be created. And that is a good thing if it's used rightly. And if it's done in a way that allows for all of society to benefit. And so to try to think about the big picture and know that what you're doing, while it might seem insignificant, is part of something much bigger. And ultimately what it's a part of as a believer is the kingdom of God and his mission for you as an ambassador in that. And uh, what a privilege uh, to be able to, to serve the king in that way. So it's very discouraging. Uh, and especially if you, if you end up having a, a, you know, which presumably you will, uh, you know, at, at some point early in your career, you know, by God's grace, maybe you won't, but if you have a tough boss <laughs> who totally, you know, doesn't care about any of this either. And so those are ways where the Lord refines you and he forms you 
and he helps you develop much more of a, of a gospel-centered approach uh, to how you work as opposed to a self-centered approach. Yeah, that's very helpful. So we do want to take some time to kind of take advantage of your experience in the investing world. And so uh, this is sort of a basic question I'm sure you've come into clients with, but we're in the midst of COVID-19 and as a wealth manager, how are you currently advising your clients sort of on the macro scale with their portfolio allocation? Yeah, great question. And, you know, I, I don't want to be necessarily trite, uh, but at a very high level, the advice we're giving them at the macro level is not dissimilar from the advice we're always giving them. However, yeah. there are very specific ways in which you can take advantage of obviously there's been a lot of volatility in recent months. And, uh, and so I think, you know, first things first, when to always be prepared for some sort of crisis, you can never be fully prepared, but always as, as an investor, you need to always think about things as having some sort of margin of safety, whether that's with the entire portfolio or with a particular investment, as you analyze a particular investment, what's the margin of safety in this opportunity? And much more so on a broader portfolio scale, am I going to be put in a position where I don't have enough liquidity to survive through a volatile season? And that, when you think about the idea of wealth management, where do people lose money? Where do people make mistakes? It's when they're in a position where they're forced to sell, right? Or when they sell at a time, because if you think about it, as long as you don't buy assets, they go to zero. Uh, Stocks tend to go up, so, I mean, not to be oversimplified, but it doesn't really matter what the price is on a day-to-day -day basis. And, and quite frankly, you know, if you get, we run back to March, we were very much proactive uh, with our clients, giving them advice that, you know, really we believe these values that have been presented to us in the market with this sell-off, we believe they're much better entry points than exit points. And that's proved right. And so we, you know, in March and April, we were buying into the market. We were rotating out of certain sectors. You know, we, we'd been underweight value, which was uh, a good call. We were overweight growth, which has played out as well. You know, in recent months, we've shifted less from the U.S. large cap growth space. We had an overweight and now redeployed some assets internationally, particularly in Europe as the, you know, uh, as the, as the opportunity or, or as the, the virus has seemed to be under more control over there. And then as the economy has recovered and opened up more uh, and then also with, with what's happened with currencies. And so the dollar weakening in recent months, especially with the federal reserve uh, action has made certain parts of the world more attractive in an equity perspective relative to the two U S. But I think ultimately when we, that's, that's a bit of the, of the investment piece, but actively managing all components of the wealth, making sure that you're not in a position where you're going to have to make a decision in this season that has ramifications long-term for the ability for you to compound and grow wealth. And I, I learned something years ago. I thought it was, was very helpful. Um, and it basically is like there's four, there's four ways people lose money. Uh, one is they overpay. So, if, if, you, if you don't pay attention to what the true value is, and so you overpay for an asset, you can lose money. Another is if you have too much leverage, you know, and so if you're in a position where you're forced to sell, right, and that happens many times, let's, you know, let's say, for instance, you had a, you know, a lot of uh, investments on margin during this season, and then you start getting margin calls, et cetera, et cetera, then you lose money. Or if in, even in real estate, you know, you're having to make debt service and all of your tenants are no longer paying rent. 
uh, things like that. Uh, another one is exogenous shock, right? And, and in many ways, that's what this pandemic has been. Something outside of anything you're doing necessarily with your portfolio, something that you have no control over just comes in and totally changes the game. And what once was a great investment is no longer so. And then a final one, and this is where, as you think about my job, what is what I spend most of my time doing in these type of seasons is protecting people from themselves. And so that whole behavioral risk, and really when you think about the psychology of investing and the emotion of investing, but much of what we've done over recent months has been reminding our clients of how we had them positioned coming into this crisis so that they wouldn't have to make a decision that was going to be uh, counterproductive to their overall plans and goals. And so uh, the behavioral risk of trying to sell, you know, being necessarily inclined to sell when the market's low and buying when it's high, we all know cognitively that doesn't make sense, but experientially and emotionally, it doesn't feel good to be buying into the market in March of April of 2020. Yeah. So. Neat. That's, that's really fascinating how you sometimes have to take on the role of sort of, I guess, the therapist. And that goes back to too, you know, kind of being an educator, you know, before right. doing this, you know, you, you, you're always having to think about how to communicate and connect with people in a way that gives them confidence in what they're doing. Yeah. So. You know, just quick aside on this with the whole exogenous shock point of, of the potential for loss. I, I know there are some folks out there like Nassim Taleb who, who writes mm -hmm. about Black Swan and basically strategies where you're willing to lose when the market is sort of not volatile, but kind mm -hmm. of massive uh, gains when you do have a shock. Are, are you mm -hmm. kind of looking into products like that for future um, kind of advising uh, advisements of clients yeah, yeah. and i and that that's always part of of the portfolio construction and and the way to think about that is how much of the portfolio are you basically hedging right and so if you think about that hedging against these type of unforeseen huge risks that are inherent in in the investment universe uh in in the way that we think about that really in the way you should think about hedging with a portfolio is just insurance right and to your point about you know being willing to lose in a season where things are not that volatile that is in the most simplified way that's the reason you buy home insurance right because your 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 hope is when you're insuring your home whether it's your primary residence your vacation residence etc whatever is that you'll never have to make a claim mm -hmm. uh but when the hurricane comes or when the tornado comes you'll be really glad you have it uh but best case scenario, you're just paying premium every year. And so that is a very simplified way to think about the type of strategies that they espouse and they explore in those type of worlds. And, and obviously with the, uh, depending upon the level of assets and sophistication of the investor, you can get very interesting and very nuanced in those type of strategies. Um, you know, for your, your run of the mill, you know, five to $50 million wealth management portfolio, you'll have a little bit of that. When you start getting to 50 plus, 100 million plus type families and portfolios and asset bases, you can get really sophisticated in the derivatives market and have opportunities to really benefit um, when there is, um, you know, 
an unforeseen event that takes place in the portfolio if you, if you uh, insured or hedge your portfolio in the right way. Yeah. Gotcha. So. Just to shift back into practicality with regard to faith really quick, I do want to ask you this question on whether you have certain pieces of scripture, theology, theology or conviction that you repeatedly go back to, which mm -hmm. definitely impact your investment philosophy for clients. Yeah. You know, in whether it impacts my investment philosophy for clients or even just for myself, uh, you know, I think the interesting thing about the world in which I work is, you know, the Bible and Jesus himself has more to say about money really than any other topic <laughs> outside of the kingdom of God, right? You know, Jesus talk, talked about money more than heaven or hell uh, combined. And, and so early on in my career, and I would, I would encourage anyone generally, but it's even more so if you're going to pursue a career in financial services, there's an excellent book uh, that's been written by a gentleman named Randy Alcorn, and it's called Money, Possessions, and Eternity. And I would say that's the most thorough and helpful book on, uh, on money from a scriptural vantage point, a biblical viewpoint that's been written. Uh, and it is incredibly thorough. It will take you a long time to read it as it should. But so there's numerous scriptures that speak to this. Um, and there's been so much analysis on that. But the one that I think I, I come back to most often, especially during even this season, it's been amplified even more is first timothy six um in the first part of first timothy six is where you know everyone always misquotes and says money is the root of all evil right but it's actually the root, love of money uh, the root of many kinds of evil but you know it, it it encourages us and it admonishes us uh do not desire necessarily to be rich those who desire to be rich fall into snares fall into great temptations that cause ruin that cause destruction uh so don't make that your pursuit don't make that your goal but then later in the chapter, it comes back and says, but for you who are rich. And so he's saying, look, don't, it's, it's okay, right? You, you know, you still may be wealthy. You still may be rich. So that's not the problem. That's not the sin. Uh, but for those of you who are rich in this present age, uh, don't find your certainty in your riches. You know, don't put your hope in the uncertainty of riches, but put your hope in the certainty of God who richly provides. And be generous, be ready to share. And so I think about that, uh, especially when he talks about don't put your hope in the uncertainty of riches. If nothing, 2020 has definitely shown us that we live in a world of great uncertainty. <laughs> you know, many things that we took for granted were instantly gone. Uh, and we saw even that portfolios can trade off incredibly quickly. I mean, we had the most violent, uh, fastest, most precipitous drop in the markets than we've ever had in history in March, between February 19 and March 23rd, over that six-week period. Um, thankfully, it's, it's primarily come back in most areas. But all of that to say is we can't take anything for granted, and even the wealth can be evaporated quickly. Businesses that were you know, rock-solid business plans that were growing, that were raising capital, that were you know, cash flowing, hugely successful, overnight got shut down. And so don't put your hope in that, but put your hope in God who richly provides. And if you are rich, if the Lord does give you material, financial wealth and success, think about that differently than the world does. Be generous, ready to share, and, and, to, and to not put your hope in that. And so 1 Timothy 6, I think, is a place you can camp out for a long time. 
uh, you know, obviously there's, there's many others, but that's one that just immediately comes to mind. Great. Thanks for that. That's super helpful for everyone really. So last two questions we want to close with one that we kind of threw in there last minute is, can you go through the best decision you made in sort of the vocational or professional sense in your twenties? And then more generally, just what is the best decision you made in your twenties? Huh. The best decision I made in my twenties was getting married. So <laughs> yeah, I would say that that's, basically uh, most people yeah. would say that. So we threw in that second one. <laughs> for, for a number of reasons, you know, my wife's awesome. Uh, that's one, but then just, you know, uh, I'm just grateful for my marriage and it was, it's, it's, it's been so beneficial in so many areas of my life. Um, but professionally, you know, the best decision I made and and it was just, this is one that's unique to me was, uh, going to business school. Um, and it's not, you know, not necessarily something that everyone needs to do. Um, and, and the value of business school, you could, you could argue these days is debatable and obviously it depends upon what you want to accomplish. But for me personally, I think it was, incredibly valuable and necessary for a couple of reasons. One, it was a time of great spiritual growth. Uh, theologically, I was having to reframe my whole idea and understanding of work uh, and how to integrate faith and work and that it is okay to be in business. Uh, in fact, it is very God glorifying to be in, 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 in the wealth creation, in the business world uh, and, to, and to really be a part of the work that God has for his kingdom through that. But also, it was it was helpful for me very practically. I mean, I, I, you know, I grew up in a world, you know, in Mississippi. My parents were educators, were awesome people, great parents. You know, I didn't even necessarily when I graduated high school know the difference between a stock and a bond. You know, and so it was not a business world that I grew up in, and so it was. Um, I needed an education in that respect, and so coming into uh, that transition, it was incredibly valuable for me. And I was able to meet a lot of, uh, you know, many excellent and very generous uh, people in the business world, in the community here in Dallas, uh, that were all gracious with their time. And so not only was I able to learn in the classroom a great amount, but being able to learn uh, relationally and uh, find mentors in the business community in Dallas who had lived life well and faithfully and also been excellent in their work uh, was a huge benefit to me and really helped me uh, navigate, uh, that, that major transition in my life. And, and, uh, and so I was very grateful for that. And so the Lord was very much at work during that season and has continued to be. And so uh, it was a big risk. It was a big step of faith to leave some, a career path. I'd always thought I would pursue, uh, not knowing exactly what I would do and especially in a very different city, but, uh, the Lord proved himself to be incredibly faithful throughout that and, and has since. So it hasn't all been rosy. Uh, but it's been, uh, it's been helpful. So. Yeah. If you could share just one last thing with the advice you would give young people who are actually in private wealth management or investment. Mm -hmm. today. Yeah. I would say if, if you're beginning your career, uh, go get the best job you can get. Okay. And, and what does that mean? Right. How do you define that? And I think really what ultimately it, it when you think about wealth management, I think there's two major components. One is people and one is platform. And so, uh, and the people component needs to be really, really good people. Uh, I think at the end of the day, satisfaction with work uh, on a number of different levels all comes down to the people you're surrounding yourself with. 
And it could be that you just want to work with really, really, really intelligent people, really sophisticated, really smart people that stimulates you. Then go find that. Or it could be that you want to work with people who are really much more values aligned and you feel like from a uh, holistic and spiritual and relational and, and formation standpoint can help you. Uh, and it would be edifying to you in that respect. Then find that. And I think the platform is also very important. Um, you know, there, there are firms that are excellent firms um, and you can learn a lot and you can have great experience with capital markets and with interesting clients and interesting business. Uh, but try to steer away from firms that are conflicted uh, where the platform uh, doesn't necessarily align with uh, what, the, what is best for the client. Uh, it may just be something that's best for the firm. So I think the platform and the people are hugely critical when you think about uh, this career in particular, but also many others. And so wanting to be able to work in a place where you're truly free uh, to be who you are and to be the work that, uh, and, to, and to do the work that God's called you to do. Cool. Thanks so much for taking the time today, Kyle. Yeah. Thank you, Jonah. This is fun and uh, grateful to know you 